0: The Diversity of Me, Keeping It Real with me, Tanya Rai. In this episode, you will hear me talking to a guest about their top three ways that they live by the ethos of keeping it real. But what does this mean? I hear you ask. Well, there's no single definition for keeping it real. It means all sorts of different things to all sorts of different people. What I do hope you find from these episodes is that they are informative, that they are of benefit to you and that you find some solace in the words that are being spoken. I first met Meg five years ago through an ex-colleague at BBC Birmingham, but she wasn't introduced to me as Meg at the time. Last year, on Trans Day of Visibility, she had changed her name by deed poll to Meg Amber Lightheart, a rather fantastic name. But I should add that her surname was already Lightheart to begin with. On the very same day, she changed her name Meg had also written one of the most truthful, emotional and articulate of posts I've ever read on LinkedIn. The opening line of which spoke to me the most was, I've had a sense of melancholy since I was a kid. Whilst never genuinely thinking of doing anything drastic, if you'd offered me a choice, I'd have preferred to not be alive. And this spoke to me Because up until the age of 21, the lyrics from Queen's song, Bohemian Rhapsody, perfectly encapsulated how I felt. And the lyrics in question being, I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. I'm happy to say that Meg no longer feels this way. On the day that she made the decision to pursue a binary transition, because there was a period where she identified herself as being non-binary, she says... The melancholy just went. It's gone. My whole life just lines up. So much of my childhood and adulthood, to be honest, makes sense. And I want to be alive. I am alive. I thought Meg's LinkedIn article was incredibly brave because she works as a leadership and presentation coach with many corporate clients. And I did wonder whether this article would impact that, but it would seem not. And I think that's a result of keeping it real. Meg also works around social and environmental justice and trans activism, which is focused almost exclusively on raising the voices and the incomes of her black trans siblings. Meg is constantly working towards a more bone-deep knowing that none of us are free until we are all free and fully supports all methods that marginalised people take to burn white patriarchal capitalism to the ground. Meg is about to launch a podcast interviewing activists across the spectrum of climate and social justice, looking at the futures we long for and the drive needed to bring them about. Meg, thank you for joining me on my podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. That's all right, Um, you were one of the first guests I definitely wanted to feature in my first series because of that LinkedIn article I talked about in the introduction, so I'm really happy that you're here. When you emailed your top three ways of keeping it real, you um, you stated that the first two were connected to a quote by Adrienne Marie Brown. And just in case my listeners don't know who she is, Adrienne is uh, an American author, women's rights activist, and black feminist based in Detroit. So the quote you refer to is, "'Where we are born into privilege, we are charged with dismantling any myth of supremacy. And where we are born into struggle, we are charged with claiming our dignity, joy, and liberation.'" That's quite a powerful quote, isn't it? Um, That leads us very nicely into your first approach of keeping it real, where you wrote, I work to deconstruct internalised dominance, focus on where me being a white, neurotypical, able-bodied person who has, quote-unquote, citizenship of a nation state and isn't incarcerated leads me to unearned certainty and arrogance. So I actively am working to unpick my ignorance of the experiences of people who are marginalised in ways I am not.
1: Yeah, you know, when I was thinking about keeping it real I think one aspect that's really important is that is for those of us with aspects of privilege in society which are both they're sown throughout our society and they not only give us economic benefits and um, material benefits but they also give us a false sense of what's right and this concept of a meritocracy that we've got to where we are um by dint of being brilliant um for um the more we have privilege the more that might not be true um i was listening to a conversation between ben hunt who is the bbc lgbt correspondent right and my my sibling kachenga my sister who is a um, black trans writer and one of the questions was at an architect conference last week and um uh one of the comments came up uh from an architect firm after this massive conversation about all sorts of things of the reality of being black and trans and queer saying, Oh, we've got this really white firm. What do we do about it? And Katenga said, uh, that's actually a red herring question. If you really cared, you'd be doing something about it already. And one of the things you need to do is to face the fact you might not be as clever as you think you are. Um, that actually, the the real material um, advantages that privilege give us particularly whiteness particularly maleness um, particularly not being disabled you know um, uh, leads us to a false um, confidence and arrogance in our abilities and so I think if you if we're talking about keeping it real one of the big things that um, I'm aware that um, my, me and my fellow white people do um, is we tend to focus on where we are marginalised um, and don't do nearly enough of the first half of the Adrian Marie Brown quote of deconstructing our internalised dominance, because life has taught us um, that our voices are the ones to listen to, our bodies are the ones to employ, our brains are the brilliant ones. And um, so if I'm going to work on keeping it real, starting with unpicking uh, that learned arrogance, that learned dominance uh, is the place where I, I think um, we should all start.
0: And when when was it that you first started thinking this way in terms of being th- that critical? Because I'm, I'm mindful that, um, you know, this is obviously a topic that is very topical uh, given recent events and uh, you know b- before we uh, re- did this recording we've actually had a chat um, a, a, to prep for this and you talked about being involved with the Impact Hub in Birmingham so could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah we were, um, uh, me and one of my people we'd we'd moved back to um, England from having lived elsewhere and um, we were thinking of where we wanted to live. And both of us had very warm feelings about the West Midlands. So we moved to Birmingham. Um, uh, in fact, staying in uh, the house of the person, I think, who probably introduced us at the BBC when we first, when we first oh, came. Oh, really? There. Yeah. Who um, was a friend of a friend. And um, we... I had a... I was trying to meet people and, you know, as you do when you you join in, like move to a new city. And uh, there was a tweet from Imi Corr saying, oh, do you want to meet, welcome to Birmingham. Do you want to meet for a coffee? Unbeknownst to me, I was one of like 900 coffees she had with people all across the city uh, Mm -hmm. talking about this project, um, which turned into uh, Impact Hub Birmingham, which was a community of people all focused on making Birmingham better and was a bit of an experiment in going what if we all knew each other and hung out and were colleagues and friends and trusted each other what projects would grow out of that and the Impact Hub went on for five years and has now changed to Civic Square which is a neighbourhood size project um, in Port Loop in Birmingham. Being in impact hub um changed every aspect of the way that i am in the world wow um, it being near really big thinkers and who some of whom are also community activists um being part of the team so we we had a team of um we we called ourselves the wizards because we brought the magic um so they were <laughs> a team of people who exchanged half a day a week um for a full time membership at the hub so and you answer the door and the events um but the beautiful thing about it was we were also members of the community so we weren't just bored employees with no mm. connection we were also people who were running our own projects so if you came to run an event and use our event space the person making your coffee and um, um, working with you, was someone who was uh, involved in in their own business or their own organisation. There were so many events at the Impact Hub, um, uh, where there were loads of book events, mainly book events by people of colour, we had incredible speakers. We had Patrice Cullors come. Um, we had Afwa Hirsch before she, well, I just think just as she was releasing British. Um, we had Melz, who's, um, uh, who's just established um, the Free Black University, always fundraising for the Free Black University. So there were just incredible um Uh, external visitors but also the people who are working at the impact hub as well um I just there's something about establishing real relationships and friendships with people who are different to you right Yeah, yeah yeah um and I realized how much I needed to educate myself and I made loads of um the kind of uh harmful errors that white people make when we begin to um unpick our whiteness and um over time uh t- did as much self-education as I could um to to be able to unpick the kind of stuff that I'd learned so being at the Impact Hub was a was a major thing so I suppose in a in a in a significant way um I've been doing that work for the past five years and um about two years ago um, me and my friend Soraya uh we did a project with um a group of handpicked white people who were friends of ours and we just ran an experiment in our lounge called Tickbox where we were doing we're experimenting with if people have already taken a couple of steps on their journey what's the next part to them becoming actively anti-racist and so we ran some experiments we've just done a um uh, retrospective um, with that with that group of people a couple of weeks ago I sent out a questionnaire and we're having some conversations um, to document that experiment because the people who came on that where I was noticing um, are all actively um, anti-racist so yeah it's been about five years it should have been longer um, but that's the way that society keeps us in uh, discourages us and keeps us in ignorance I think
0: and when you were said, when you said you had made those errors, were you called out for it uh, at the time of making the errors, and and that's how you kind of learnt, um, or or was it a kind of self awareness of oh no, I've done this or I've said this?
1: Um, both really, and I think I um, there's a couple of people whose relationships I you know growing friendships that I damaged, um, and there were other people who. Over time, we built proper friendships and relationships, and um, so partially it was being told that. And and this is the thing that I've had to learn, and I think it's important that I'm going to say we all like when we're when we're looking at areas of our privilege, um, so that's you know places where we have unearned advantage, um, that when a marginalized person someone who's marginalized in a way that you're not marginalized comes to you and tells you that you've said something or done something harmful um i realize now that is a massive gift and a massive like they're trusting you there are people and, and I kind of realise that much more now as a trans person, someone who's now realized they're trans and come out as trans, that there are some people who I won't bother talking about stuff with. And there's other people who I go, you're worth me telling you this. Yeah. Um, and so if someone is uh, t- telling you that you've done something harmful, um, it's actually a time to really stop and slow down and reflect. Um, and I was, I'm really blessed and gifted to have an incredible group of uh, mainly black and brown uh, women and non-binary people around me um, who um, were doing amazing work, and I could see the amazing work they were doing, and it it made me want to just do better.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine, and I I think that's just such a fantastic example of how communities can be brought together for the greater good um and yes of course there's been a lot of learnings along the way and it may not have always been pretty but I think that that's a process that needs to happen right um and I wonder whether this is something that can be kind of taken from Birmingham and and done nationally or or you know I apologize if I'm being ignorant about this and not know but is that something that's happening do you know in terms of taking what impact hub have done there or civic square as it's now known and doing it on a national level?
1: Well, the, the, um, impact hub is part of an, it's a, it's a global network of impact hubs. So it was part of a, of a global organization, but they all function in very different ways. And, um, it was particularly the team, um, Emmy and Andy and Nikki and, um, Indy who, and, and, um, uh, Danny and Daniel, uh, who are running, um, and Bing, <laughs> who are running this space. Um, it was really their drive to be working at many, many different levels, uh, both at, at the community grassroots level as well as um, much bigger levels. That they they kind of use the the Impact Hub as a as a, as a vehicle, um, and then now they're um, they're working on and and I I don't want to speak to their work because I, I I haven't really looked in detail at it, but my understanding is that they're working at a very real neighbourhood level, but also being open about their learning. So other people can do similar things in their own neighbourhood. I mean, it was, it was never really a a community for white people to learn, you know, Um, but it was a community of people doing amazing work. Um, And of course, like um, most projects, it's, uh the the membership and the people who turned up to events reflected largely you know the makeup of the organizers uh, which is another thing um for us all to be aware of when we're running um events or groups or organizations mm-hmm. um unless you do an enormous amount of work um the people who are going to show up are probably going to look like you
0: yeah yeah of course of course Well, um, let's talk about your second way of keeping it real now, which um, you said uh, in in the email to me, I work to nurture the oppressed part of me, uncovering my internalised misogyny, trans misogyny, heteronormativity, finding queer slash trans community, doing therapy. So I'm correcting harmful misconceptions about myself. Um, again, a, another really kind of deep thought process to have about oneself. Um, and, I'm yeah, very deep, Tanya. I'm very <laughs> deep. <laughs> do you know what? You're my kind of girl because I am too. I am too because I don't think I don't think many people do this, do they? They don't think either objectively or rationally in any kind of way about themselves in a in a meaningful way, they kind of just go through life and I'm not critiquing that or criticizing that, but I think there is value in looking into yourself in the way that you just said in that quote.
1: you know, I think it's vital um for us to reclaim the parts of ourselves that have been damaged and silenced and stolen by our white patriarchal capitalist system and because all of that harms all of us and those of us who've had damage along the way like following the second part of the adrian marie brown quote about finding nurturing and and solace for those parts is also really important um and as someone who only realized that they were trans much later in life you know in my um, probably when i turned 40 late 30 very late 30s um looking back at my life and seeing how much i had to hide my femininity and i had to work really hard to make the way that i moved through the world and the way i held my body and even the way i shaped my body in terms of you know the gym and dieting and whatever, but so that I was more like a guy. Um, and all of us have ingested misogyny. All of us have ingested trans misogyny um, and transphobia. And um, so when you realise that you're trans, like all of that stuff comes up. And I think it was part of the reason why it took me so long to know. And I'm just again, community and representation has been so important because I was talking to my to my therapist on Friday and we were talking about so I was a, a girly kid, unsurprisingly. Um in what it, ways? <sighs> See, it's not about clothes and toys, and, and and it's never really about that. And some of the um, uh, some of the people who want to exclude trans people from being trans, they want to make it sound like that's what we're talking about. Um, hmm. And I was. I was just a girl, you know, when I look back, I had loads of girlfriends and felt really uncomfortable if we ever had to go into single sex groups. Uh, um,
0: Like at PE and stuff. PE,
1: yeah, and any of that stuff. And always felt much more comfortable with girls. Um, And then as I hit my teen years realizing that i was um mainly attracted to guys so the 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 channel for that in society in the late 80s um was oh feminine uh uh person assigned male at birth who's attracted to men oh they're, oh they're gay and so it was a inaccurate diagnosis of who I was and then I really tried hard to live that that way Mm -hmm. and probably if I hadn't met other trans people I would have carried on that way but it was only by um, uh, actually what happened was when we moved to Birmingham uh, I became a roller derby referee so, I don't know if you know what roller derby is.
0: Could you just explain it for sure. my listeners, just in case they don't know? But I read this about you. Yes,
1: roller derby is uh, was created by women, um, uh, and uh, it's it's like rugby on roller skates with no rugby ball. <laughs>
0: Sounds fun. So it's
1: a it's a full contact, fast, sometimes quite violent sport, um, which is uh, very gender inclusive in its um, uh, in its origins. And has lots of very gender diverse people playing it. And um, uh, my friend Ness, who was one of the people who brought us to Birmingham. Uh, she was a player at the time and I showed up and I just fell in love with the referees and thought, Oh, wow, I could be, because at the time, you know, I didn't think about playing because it was a, it was a, um, uh, like a, a women's team though really in roller derby, those terms are quite fluid, mm. but I started meeting non-binary people. Um, I started, um, uh, I attended a couple of events. I met Travis Alabanza and Alec Vaid-Menon and, um, and who were big non-binary poets and writers and activists. And um, something just stirred in me to go. And it started off with gender expression mm. of me going, just kind of feel like I want to wear more floaty clothes or I want to experiment with makeup and then it turned into oh I think this is actually more about my gender identity and so like moved into a more non-binary um identity I remember the first time I'd gone and bought some mascara and it was at a roller derby um Tournament, and I'd gone to the loo and put the tiniest amount on my eyelashes, and was so scared of like of repercussions. And I spoke to my friend Mimi, who was head ref, and said to them, i, could, I just put mascara on Mimi," and they looked and they went, "I can barely see, darling, and it's fine. It's roller derby." And then I began wearing makeup when I was refereeing, and then it led to like, like lots of conversations with my partner and I then began to move through the world shopping on both sides of the store and um which was incredibly nerve-wracking um to be going into spaces that were very gendered and friends would come with me and um and then
0: did you get funny looks in the stores
1: yeah there were all sorts of things so you get you get funny looks you it's also just a sense of you're in the wrong place here like this is not your space Mm. and which is one of those things around gender the idea of gendered I mean if we really someone said I saw someone post the other day that um gender is like astrology you know like it goes oh well if you have this type of genitals therefore you will enjoy these type of cho- toys and you will be strong and you will like sports mm. <laughs> and um really we should probably tear it all down and then it, uh, three years ago um i went to trans vegas uh, which was a project project in manchester um uh, it's a cre- it's run by trans creative so it's trans creative people doing a festival for other trans people and i met kuchenga who is now my sister And Juno Juno Roche, who is a writer of three incredible books about trans people, including one that's just come out called Gender Explorers about with interviews of young trans people. Amazing. Um, And uh, I met the people who run it and just something in my body went when I met other trans women for the first time, I went, oh, that's me. And actually, like, so I was crying, I, if I, I was scrolling through my Instagram and found a photo I took of Kachenga being inter- interviewed by Charlie Craggs, who's another incredible trans woman, trans activist, um, who wrote a book called To My Sisters, which was a collection of letters by trans women to their younger selves. And um, I was just sobbing at the back of the room, knowing like I just went, I, I walked up to Kajenga after the interview and just said, and she barely knew me, and said, I think I'm a girl. And she just looked at me and put her hand on my shoulder and went, it's all right, I'm with you. And she's she has been ever since. Um, and knowing in that moment that I was going to have to be someone who was going to have to do that whole coming out thing.
0: Yeah. And and do went, it again. Oh,
1: crap do it again but in a much different way like it was really different to go <sighs> my mum never really understood they then pronouns mm-hmm. um but it was like the thought to go to your parents and go you've actually got a daughter to go to your partner and go you've actually got a wife not mm-hmm. a husband um to change my name to like the whole thing is is full on Um, But what it has done is, as you said in the beginning, it allowed me to, it's allowing me to find joy in my body, joy in how I am, to learn more about our history as trans people, as people who can be valued. And um, I watched uh, the great documentary on Netflix, Disclosure, uh, which is um looking at the portrayal of trans people in Hollywood mainly yeah. just come out on Netflix, and it has some flaws in terms of its representation of non binary people in terms of the representation of um non black people of colour um and in terms of its representation of trans masculine people like there was there there were some flaws and it just shook my bones and there was this one one thing that really just like took me over the edge was there was they were there was a clip of a show with a father in a parents group taught when they were parents of trans children going being a parent of a trans kid is amazing trans kids are unicorns they're so special you're so lucky to be a parent of a trans kid and it just destroyed me um like proper 15 minutes open mouth sobbing to go oh wow i don't even think of myself that way Mm. um I just feel like all I've done is just break things by coming out as trans. And so it's a constant journey to go to recover these parts that have been beaten down. And when I look back on my childhood and the amount of bullying I had for being gay, Mm. um, but really that means for being someone assigned male at birth who is overly feminine Mm. and how much I policed my body, how much I policed how I I was, um, how much I wasn't allowed to be in spaces where I felt safe. Um, And then, you know, teenagehood and adolescence and adult life and the relief and trepidation of the Impact Hub did for the um, uh, International Women's Day, did a disco um, uh, for women and non-binary people, and for the first time, I was in like a quote-unquote women's space and and welcome, and to finally have the sisterhood that I longed for my entire life has been has been wild. So I think the yeah, the second part of keeping it real is nurturing, healing those parts which have been damaged. And it's a really, um, it's a really slow and long process.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine it, but um, it's just, it's just something that I find fascinating and not because I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is a, a strange group of people. You know, it's from a human point of view, I, c- I can only imagine how hard and difficult a journey it is for trans people. Um, and And obviously, you know, each individual has their own... I keep saying this phrase their own unique levels of shit to deal with in in different contexts. Um
1: I didn't know we were allowed to swear Tanya. Oh
0: yeah, I'm I'm I yeah, I've got my podcast down as explicit content. Sorry. I, yes, I should have um I should have said swearing is totally I said a- crap
1: before when I meant to say shit. <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry. You can swear as much as you like. If you want to, you can just get some more swears in just to make up for for lost I'll time. I'll make sure
1: in the third part I'll oh yeah, I'll swear a bit.
0: Um but yeah, um the, the, I I just think that us as humans need to be I don't want to kind of say need to be, but I think it's it would be useful to all of us to be more aware of other people's experiences and uh, other people's ways of life because you become more educated. And when you become more educated, it it, it does better you as a person, I believe. Um, and I, I also wanted to suggest to you, if you haven't um, listened to um, Fern Cotton's podcast, Happy Place, She has a um, specific episode with Kelly Jones from Stereophonics. And um, his daughter is going through uh, a transition. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a really interesting piece of audio to listen to from a parent's perspective. Um, Mm. And he has been incredibly supportive, but also incredibly open and honest about how how it was for him hmm. uh, as a father who um you know has has a daughter who then says you know in the same way that you said to your parents you know you ha- you have a daughter not a son it was a, it was the other hmm. way around for him and uh, i just think that that might be Oh thing. so
1: he's got he's got a trans son yeah, you mean yeah okay so that's kind of important that we talk about that that uh, um so he has a son who's transitioning um not not a daughter yes so that of course, we make sorry. sure that all the time we're, yeah. we're, we're we're gendering people in the way that they are right now
0: yeah yeah of course yeah. apologies yeah. oh okay
1: interesting and then i think that the other thing that links in with this as well is that um it links in with the first part that we were talking about that so yes coming out as trans later on in life is kind of weird and my transition will not be the same as someone who started much earlier in their life because testosterone's ravaged my body in certain ways and yet I'm white and um, so as you said in the beginning me coming out as trans hasn't really affected my coaching business mm. um, I'm getting invited on podcasts to talk um, I don't experience harassment Um, and part of that is because I'm middle-aged and people are less interested in sexualizing middle-aged people Um, and part of that is also um, whiteness and the fact that I've already established a business and um, so lots of my um, black trans siblings have a wildly harder time. And so this is uh, why the um, focus recently has been, or not just recently, um, but there's been an explicit move to talk about black trans lives uh, because disproportionately uh, black trans people and particularly black trans feminine people um, are attacked and violently killed. And, uh, experience, uh, all sorts of um, violence that just isn't isn't spoken about. And also um, uh, white people just, we've been given the book deals and uh, um, the opportunities to speak and also much more safety. And so this is why those two points, I think, need to always be combined, that um, if I focus too much on, oh, like my poor um uh damaged trans child without also going whiteness, uh, I'm not disabled um and uh, I'm neurotypical, so I move through the wor- a world that is largely made for me, and those two things are in constant dialogue um so that we make sure that we're both deconstructing dominance and also nurturing the the oppressed parts of ourselves.
0: Your third one, third way of keeping it real i I guess in some ways we've we've covered parts of it um already, but you said I tried to listen to messages in my body about coherence. A friend and teacher of mine talks about coherence, everything pointing in the same direction, energetically, spiritually. And I try to trust what my body tells me when things are not coherent in terms of identity stuff, morality, people, situations.
1: Yeah, I think there's... If we're talking about keeping it real, I think our body tells us lots of things and we don't always listen to it. Um, We have an instinct about a person... Um And do we listen to that instinct um as well as analyzing whether that instinct is actually just prejudice um just links to the first two things um but am I doing work that is coherent with who I want to be in the world? am I um being sucked into weird marketing stuff that would doesn't link with my values um am i saying the things that need to be said um with my uh the three of us who all live together we check in in theory once a week because we've all been living with each other constantly in lockdown it's actually been less um though we could probably do with doing it more um we have a check-in and there's also this question we ask uh, each other to go is there anything you're hesitant about talking about is there anything you're worried about saying and knowing that those things that we store in us the way we go i don't really want to talk about that um but bringing it to light so there's a there's a something around trusting bodily information that i think is important about keeping it real and also as a trans person um learning to trust my body as well learning to trust my instincts is also um important a friend of mine does rachel donath she is a coach and she does a lot of work around um using embodied methods for coaching and it's fascinating um what comes out of embodied methods and um uh, her and so so that means not just sitting down and talking but also maybe placing objects and exploring what it's like to move between them the thing the things that you're talking about um tuning into what different parts of your body are telling you um there's even a, um something really interesting called constellations which rachel does my friend shannon does so there's um uh uh a really interesting um, field of study, which I don't know much about at all, um, that uh, also you can use people to represent parts of your issues that are going on. And there are these fascinating insights that come from um, people being physically together and and, and, and exploring issues in, in embodied ways. So not just through talking Um, but through physically moving through, through space. I've probably described that really badly. I'm sorry, Rachel. I'm sorry, Shannon. Um, But there's, for me individually, I think there's something around um, tuning into our bodily instincts and going, is this coherent with who I am, who I want to be? Is this coherent with my values? Is my body whispering something to me that I should really be listening to? Um, That's the, I suppose that's my third way of making sure I keep it real.
0: It's It's been a, a really fascinating chat and conversation. Thank you so much. I think it, I'm hoping that this will give my listeners some food for thought. And also, you know, thank you for calling me out on the, the description I said earlier, because... I hope know, it was calling
1: I, you in, Tanya.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, of course. But I, I just, um, I, I just want to kind of make people aware of these things because even, you know, even though you had prepped me beforehand, you had sent me some guidelines and documents which I had read, but I was still kind of making that reference in the way that I had interpreted it from <laughs> how I listened to that show. But I will kind of defend myself a little bit in terms of that. That was a the kind of dialogue that was mentioned in that show as well, in terms of how he, um, Kelly Jones from Phonics, I mean, explained the situation from mm. his own personal point of view. But it's interesting, isn't it, that those kind of descriptions are so important in the way that people converse with one another or um, or how they understand this whole area and uh, I I really appreciate the time that you've taken to to have this chat with me for being so open and honest and you know when when I approached you yes it was as a result of that LinkedIn article and yes of course I did want to be able to talk to you about your um, experiences um, transitioning i never expected this amount of honesty and uh i i'm I'm really appreciative appreciative of it um so thank you
1: thank you for having me on and if you're gonna if your podcast is about keeping it real of course i'm going to keep it real (laughs) so um thank you for creating a space which allowed for such um open candid dialogue
0: thank you yes um right well we'll leave it there for now and uh I do hope that we stay in touch um, because actually we, whilst we met five years ago, it's one of those kind of typical things, isn't it? That you connect with someone on LinkedIn, you've met them a couple of times and then you you kind of get on with your your, your day-to-day life. But um, I have really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Mm, so. Good,
1: thank you for having me.
0: I truly hope that you have enjoyed listening to this episode of The Diversity of Me, keeping it real with me, Tanya Rai. If you did please do take the time out to rate, review and subscribe only because it helps other people find this podcast more easily. And if you had enjoyed it and found it beneficial, then maybe somebody else will too.